Okay, I just tapped record, so we're recording. On October 7th, 2001, almost four weeks after the September 11th attacks in New York and Washington, D.C., the U.S. launched Operation Enduring Freedom, a coalition targeting the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan through military strikes. Twenty years later, on August 15th of this year, the Afghanistan government collapsed and Kabul came under control of the Taliban, ushering in a new era of uncertainty and questions about the future. So today on the podcast, we were joined again by Dr. Robert Hamilton to discuss the situation surrounding Afghanistan, as well as touching on Georgia, NATO, and Russo-China relations. So certainly this is a strategic failure, right? We should get that out, <laughs> out of the way right away. The way it ended and the collapse of the Afghan National Security Forces, the chaos in, in the country, the chaos in Kabul is a strategic failure. Dr. Hamilton is an associate professor of Eurasian Studies at the U.S. Army War College, though he's currently on leave to serve as the advisor to the Georgia Ministry of Defense in Tbilisi. Four, three, two, one. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This is your second time around, actually, so we're glad that Tom didn't scare you off the first time. <laughs> Not at all, and thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be back. Very much happy to have you. So let's just get started with the you know news that's at the top of the headlines that has been since essentially August 15th when the Taliban took over Kabul and essentially the Afghanistan government collapsed. What are your thoughts on the matter? Were you surprised kind of with the fallout that occurred and the situation you know, right now with all of the evacuations and the discussions that have been going on with the Taliban? Kind of what are your thoughts on the matter? Sure. So I guess when this all settles out at some point in over the next weeks or months, the question we should ask is, is what does it mean for the regional security architecture, right? What does it mean for the the security of the region? Obviously, the U.S. is is no longer a major player in the regional security architecture. So uh, to me, that means you know, the, the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, has been, aside from the U.S., the main instrument of regional security architecture for the past decade plus. The interesting thing with the U.S. out of the region, at least from a military perspective now, the SCO brings together China, Russia, all five post-Soviet Central Asian states, India and Pakistan uh, as members, and then Afghanistan and Iran as observers. So I guess the first question is, does Afghanistan under a Taliban rule remain a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or will they be kicked out? Will they want to remain a member? Uh, and then will the SCO gain an influence as a forum for regional cooperation, or will it lose influence as the regional powers pursue their own interests in the vacuum after the U.S. withdrawal. And some of the some regional powers who are also SCO members have conflicting interests. For instance, Pakistan and India are both members and they have very much as they do everywhere. But in Afghanistan, they have conflicting interests. And then the second question I would ask is, what does it do to the relationship between China and Russia in the region and specifically in the Central Asian states? For the last decade or so, Russia has been the security provider in the five former Soviet Central Asian states of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Russia has provided security, and China has used the security provided to pursue economic gains. And the question I would have is, can this continue? Is, is Russia willing to continue to pay the cost of providing security and let China reap most of the economic benefits of that security? 
And then finally, the end of the U.S. presence is sort of a double-edged sword, for, especially for Russia, but also for China. It strengthens their relative influence in the region, but it also raises their level of responsibility for regional stability and security. And it ends their ability to sort of use the U.S. as a foil uh, or blame the U.S. for things that happen in the region that, that they see as contrary to their interests. So I guess those are the three big questions I would ask in terms of regional security ar- architecture. What's the role of the SCO? What is the relationship between Russia and China going forward? And then how will Russia and China step in to sort of fill the vacuum caused by the end of U.S. presence there? Do you have any answers to those questions yet, or is it kind of a time will tell situation? I asked them because I don't know the answers and I'm interested. <laughs> there, are things I'm, there are things I think about. There are things that I'm, I'm working on. I'm doing some research. I have a book project for a book on Chinese-Russian relations, looking at how they interact in seven different regions of the world, one of which is Central Asia. Luckily, the book project is in its early months. It's a two-year grant and a two-year project. So luckily, I was not near the end when this happened in Afghanistan. I know the Afghanistan withdrawal has a lot more ramifications around the world than my little book project, but it has completely changed the security dynamic, potentially the economic dynamic in the region. So I I don't really have any answers. My sense is this is likely to be a, a serious burden on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to manage, and you're likely to see... Uh, regional powers pursuing their own interests either within the SEO or outside of the SEO. So this, I think, will be it's a blow to the SEO. It'll be something very difficult to manage. The the fall of the non-Taliban Afghan government and the the you know Taliban 2.0 government. In terms of Russia and China in the Central Asian states, and especially does that then you know how do they interact in Afghanistan is going to be interesting to see. My sense is that to this point, Russia, yeah, Russia has been happy to pay the cost of maintaining security because it sees that region as so critical to its own security. But at some point, I I will have to wonder if people in Moscow are not going to sort of wonder if the Chinese aren't free riding on the security that Russia provides and getting rich at Russia's expense. So I can see that as a potential bone of contention between the two of them in the future. Thank you again for joining us. In my mind, at least, and I'll be certainly curious of your thoughts, I would imagine that when talking about these states of the Shanghai group pursuing their own interests, I imagine China is going to want to have a greater role pursuing its own security interests in Afghanistan due to, obviously, its its border with the Xinjiang province and situation with, with the Uyghurs and how it's dealt with them over the past years. With the Sunni puritanical regime of the Taliban coming to power in Afghanistan, I, I have to imagine that, that China would want to have a greater role in preventing any spillover into Xinjiang. Yeah, certainly. I think that's true. And, you know, the Chinese, I think, have plenty of leverage with the Taliban and will probably use whatever instruments of statecraft they can, diplomacy, economic instruments. I I, I don't know. I don't think uh, they're eager to use military, <laughs> military power to pursue their interests in Afghanistan. But... I think they'll use whatever leverage they can, and and that would probably be mostly economic leverage to induce the Taliban, if they can, to ensure that what happened in Afghanistan does not destabilize Xinjiang. I had seen some reports recently that the Taliban were rounding up Uyghurs, and I was not, again, it was a press report that I wasn't able to to get any, any further information on. But if that's the case, that argues that China has leverage and is using it. I guess it's a two-way street, right? You certainly don't want the you don't want the Talibanization of of Xinjiang, and you also don't want 
from the Chinese perspective, I think Uyghurs from Xinjiang to be able to move into that northeastern Afghanistan. It's a tiny, tiny border, but it's also a very remote region that, you know, the government in Kabul has never had good success at controlling. So they don't want a, a Uyghur sanctuary in Afghanistan and they don't want the, that ideology seeping over the border into Xinjiang. briefly kind of pivot because, you know, Zach and I are both based in the U.S., so we've been exposed to a lot of Western media, and a lot of the discussions around Afghanistan have been very U.S.-focused, and there's been a lot of discussion on how this is going to hit the U.S. credibility and that it's really taken a toll, especially on U.S. military, that a lot of those that served over there felt that in the past 20 years, nothing essentially was achieved. We withdrew and then Within a couple of days, everything collapsed and there's been a lot of frustration, a lot of discussion of was this inevitable, was it not inevitable, finger pointing, and it's it's almost been chaotic a little bit, in-group arguing over here as well as to what to do about everything. And you, you did serve over there as well, so I wanted to kind of get your take on, on that matter. Yeah, I served twice in Afghanistan and, and once actually in Pakistan at the our embassy in Islamabad. And, and of course, those are very different experiences in, in those two countries. Pakistan has a really, really sort of conflicting set of, of interests. They, sometimes one set of interests conflict with another set of interests in Pakistan, and then we have interests that align uh, very closely and interests that are very misaligned with Pakistan. So yeah, I spent, you know, overall close to 30 months of my, my career in those two countries. And so certainly this is a strategic failure, right? We should get that out, <laughs> out of the way right away. Whether or not it was inevitable that the U.S. was going to end its presence in Afghanistan, its military presence, the way it ended and the collapse of the Afghan National Security Forces, the chaos in, in the country, the chaos in Kabul is a strategic failure. The causes of the strategic failure, first of all, there are multiple causes, and we're not going to know all of the factors that influenced this that played into the outcome for, for years, if not decades, right? One of, the, one of the best books I ever read on the Soviet uh, experience in Afghanistan is by Roderick Braithwaite, who's the former UK ambassador to Afghanistan and also was able to get into the, the Russian archives shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union and get into all the, the Russian decision-making notes of meetings and memos and things like that that went into the decision to go into Afghanistan. Uh, but again, that book was, was, was written decades after the end of the Russian experience, the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. So I think the same thing is going to happen here. It's going to be a couple of decades before we understand exactly what happened, where the, the U.S. effort went wrong. And, and the question of was it all worth it is, again, I have a hard time answering that question because I'm probably too close to it to answer it unemotionally. So I, I won't try. I do think there are some lessons. You know, one is, and we, we're bad at this, frankly, in, in, in the U.S., and we're bad. We tend to be not great at it in democracies in general, and that is to think long term. You know, begin with the end in mind. What is your end? What's your objective? And, and we often uh, are, are thinking more in terms of, uh, you know, an election cycle or a couple at the most and, and not thinking in terms of decades. I would say also we, we ought not expand our war aims with initial success. And I think, you know, that's what happened in Afghanistan. We had a rapid initial success and the initial aim of the intervention, which was to ensure that Afghanistan never again became a base for terrorism to attack the U.S. and its allies. That aim expanded to an effort essentially to remake Afghanistan and to to make it a democracy and, and to, you know, to bring its its society 
into the 21st century and to essentially create a national identity in Afghanistan in a country that had never had a true sort of civic national identity, an identity that wasn't based on a tribal or ethnic or linguistic or religious distinctions. And so I, I think that expansion of our war aims early on in Afghanistan was a mistake. <laughs> the, I think the evidence that it was a mistake is by the end, our war aims had gone back to what they originally were, which is, hey, let's just make sure Afghanistan uh, is not used as a base for terrorist attacks against the U.S. and its allies. The other thing I would say in terms of lessons is, uh, you know, you'll hear a lot about why the Afghan National Security Forces, Afghan National Army and police didn't fight. What brought the Afghan National Security Forces down was not bad equipment or bad training, and their soldiers were not cowards. 66,000 plus have died since the end of the U.S. combat mission in 2014. So that's, that is a massive casualty rate over seven years. The failure of the Afghan National Security Forces was caused by failure at what we would call in the U.S. Army, we call it the generating force, right? The idea is that your tactical units, your battalions and brigades and companies that do the actual fighting, they can't generate, sustain, and regenerate themselves. They need to be supported by institutions above them. In the U.S. Army, it's a set of institutions, a training and doctrine command, human resources command, acquisition command, that provide personnel, equipment, training, education, strategies, and plans for the tactical units to, to allow them to fight. And when these Afghan National Army units and police units went out and engaged the Taliban and came back with 30, 40% casualties, they couldn't regenerate themselves because the Afghans were either unwilling or unable. And, and, and we did not focus long enough, I think, at that generating force level. It's institution building. And it's, it, I think we, we fooled ourselves for a long time into thinking if we just train these, these Afghan units you know, and equip them, they'll go out and fight and they'll, they'll fight well enough to, to win, but you can't, you can't sustain that level of capability if you don't work above the fighting units. And I don't think we worked long enough and hard enough at that level. You know, in some of those, some of those same lessons, uh, the Soviets learned, and we may have learned them by, by better studying their experience in Afghanistan. Dr. Hamilton, I'm, I'm certainly curious because I, I don't think there's any lack of knowledge as it relates to the historical precedent of the Soviet-Afghan war. We saw the attempts of the Soviets to turn a, a largely feudal society outside of the regional capitals and the capital of Kabul itself into a socialist society and their struggles for the you know almost decade plus there. Why did we struggle to learn those lessons as it relates to kind of our, our almost mission creep, if you can call it that, in Afghanistan, where we went in to remove al-Qaeda, uh, remove the safe haven for, you know, these foreign fighters who we actually funded initially in the Mujahideen during the Soviet-Afghan War? Why, why did we fail to learn those lessons in that same, you know, failed intent in the mission only a few decades after the, the Soviet-Afghan War? Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't have a great answer. Um, I'm sure a little bit of hubris played into it, right? We we're better than the Soviets. You know, we're not guided by, you know, by Marxist ideology and, you know, the idea that you could go into what was essentially a feudal society and turn it into a, a Marxist classless society. In retrospect, looks sort of preposterous, but I don't know that in 30 years we're going to say the idea to build an inclusive, non-ethnically or linguistically or religiously based Afghan national identity was not almost as preposterous. It just, identities are sticky, right? And they, they change. Yes, they can be changed, um, but they, they change fairly gradually or they change through a whole lot of uh, violence or force applied, right? The Soviets 
had 75 years and applied a lot of violence and a lot of force in an effort to reshape all the different identities that they encountered, you know, after the Bolshevik Revolution, all the different identities in the Soviet Union in terms of ethnicities and nations and languages and things like that. And, you know, in, in seven plus decades with a whole lot of pressure applied and force and violence applied, they still were unsuccessful in creating a Soviet identity that sort of transcended all the national identities in the country that they, they, they ran. So in a lot less time and with a lot less force, I think it was probably naive of us to assume that we could actually create a unifying national identity in Afghanistan that would be you know, strong enough to take on the, the, the identity that the Taliban were, were propagating, which was a much more exclusive in-group, out-group identity. It was based, you know, certainly on an interpretation of, of Islam. It was based largely on, um, you know, a, the Pashtun ethnic group, although there are other, there are Taliban from other groups. And it also had sort of an apocalyptic and, and religious element to it that uh, I, I think, and again, I don't, I haven't researched this specifically, but I, I would hypothesize that religious identities are probably better motivators than a broad, inclusive, civic, national identity uh, because you can convince followers that, you know, their everlasting souls are, are hanging the balance. Whereas on the other side, what we were trying to do, uh, we, we couldn't and wouldn't have ever made that argument. So in the short term, I think it's easier to convince people to make these sacrifices with a narrow, exclusive you know, yes, xenophobic, you know, the, the Taliban are full of phobias, but um, by setting their by setting their followers against all these other groups and convincing them that these groups uh, were not only sort of enemies, but were also either infidels or apostates. And if they didn't defeat them, then, then you know, that they're, or if they did defeat them, that, you know, their souls were, were set for eternity. And then the final thing was the Taliban could make the, the point that they were fighting a foreign invasion, right? They could make the point that they were an, they were an organic group, Afghan group, and that uh, the Afghan government and the Afghan army were tools of foreign invaders. So they could make all those arguments. Uh, and I think what you saw is a really high level of motivation on the part of the Taliban. And we can't support, we can't forget the support from Pakistan. You know, we don't like to talk about it openly, especially, you know, with the Pakistanis. But, you know, we know it's a fact. Not the Taliban, but other groups as well, terrorist groups, were getting support from across the border. And just a quick follow up on that. And did Afghans seem to be uniting, at least in your experience, under this kind of civic identity? Or was it more ethnic? You know, I'm first and foremost Pashtun, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Tajik or Hazara. Or was it an ethnic identity almost overwhelmingly? And then maybe the civic identity was somewhere down the line of, of, of kind of how you would present yourself in society. Yeah, I, that's such a good question that I don't, again, it's another one I don't have a good answer for. But my sense was that Especially with us, they knew the, they knew the right words to say. They knew they knew you know the game to play. But when you got under the surface and behind the scenes, you know the the sort of mosaic of identities in Afghanistan is is so extensive. And you've got, as you said, you know you've got the major ethnic groups, you know Pashtuns, Tajiks, Uzbek, Hazara, and then and others. You've got Pashto language, and you've got Dari. Uh, and then other minor languages. Then you've got regional identities, right? Herat and Mazari Sharif and Kandahar are, are very different than Kabul, and they're very different from each other. And then, and those are often overlaid on on warlord networks that control those regions that cut deals with each other. And and so my sense is, in 20 years with 
not a lot of application of resources, really. I mean, we'll say that, you know, what we spent and what we lost, and, you know, it's true, but relative to the objective we were trying to achieve, if we really believed we were going to create this broad-based, inclusive Afghan national identity, we were trying to do it really, really on the cheap. And the other thing I think we can't forget is Iraq, you know, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, we took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan and Iraq became the, the strategic priority for really until until the surge in Afghanistan or, you know, maybe even until the failure or till the end of the Iraq mission in 2011. Uh, Iraq was clearly the strategic priority. So Afghanistan was an economy of force mission and it showed. I hate to jump in again, but I, I have to ask about Pakistan. And I know this is a, a, like you said, this is a sensitive question, but what will in Afghanistan now where Pakistan doesn't need to hide its intentions look like? Um, you know, I think about the Haqqani network. I think about the duplicitous nature. And I know that's kind of ironic to say, considering it's the intelligence service, but the duplicitous nature of the ISI. I think of groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba and what that means for relations with India. Can we expect in Afghanistan now that's going to see something similar to the Soviet experience, you know, even after where there was influx in foreign fighters who can expect support from a, a friendly Pakistani government? Are, are we going to see a, a foreign fighter phenomenon like we saw in the 90s or the end of the Soviet war? I don't know. You know, in a sense, I think Pakistan got what it wanted. It got it got a, a government. So, you know, in as I'm sure you know, every single thing in Islamabad is looked through the, you know, the prism of India. Uh, and so Afghanistan mattered to Pakistan for several reasons, but one of the major reasons it mattered was the strategic depth against India. And the idea that a U.S.-supported Afghan government was friendly with India and India had a large diplomatic presence and the Pakistanis will tell you it had a massive intelligence presence as well. And, and in their minds, it was all about eliminating any strategic depth that Pakistan may have in the event of war with India. In other words, it, it would mean that Pakistan essentially had an enemy on both sides. And, and then, you know, the Afghan government, the, the U.S.-supported Afghan government refused to acknowledge or recognize the Duran line as the international border, would every once in a while make noises about, you know, this idea of Pashtunistan, which is really, really threatening to the Pakistanis. And so, you know, for a lot of reasons, India being the primary one, but also just sort of un unhappiness with the government in Kabul after after the Taliban fell. The, the, the Pakistanis never really could stop supporting the Taliban and I think have essentially gotten what they wanted. Now they have to be a part of managing it. And the foreign fighter influx is a is a good question. You know, when I was in Pakistan, it was 2013-2014, and um, you mentioned the Haqqanis. The Haqqanis were a huge problem, and, you know, we, we were admonishing them constantly and pointing out to them that, you know, there was good evidence that they were supporting the Haqqanis and that, you know, they needed to undertake an operation and clear the Haqqanis from their, from their, ter from their land, from their country, from their side of the border, uh, because we knew the Haqqanis were crossing the border and, and attacking U.S. troops in, in Afghanistan. And they would make the, the right noises and say the right words and then move very deliberately and slowly. And if you look at it sort of from their perspective, this is in the summer of 2014. We're having this discussion. Well, 
The Haqqanis aren't indigenous to Pakistan, right? They came across the border from Afghanistan after we started uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. We essentially chased them into Pakistan. The last thing I think the Pakistanis wanted in the summer and fall of 2014 was to pick a fight with the Haqqanis when they knew that the U.S. was withdrawing, that our combat operation in, in Afghanistan was ending in December of 2014, right? That's when, you know, the NATO ISAF mission ended and we became, it became resolute support mission. And, the combat operation ended and it became a training and support mission. So I think in the Pakistani calculus, if they could wait wait us out and wait the Haqqanis out, they would just go back across the border into Afghanistan and be someone else's problem after we left in 2014. Uh, and so there are, I think, a lot of reasons why they were really, really not in a hurry to attack some of the groups uh, on their soil that we knew were attacking U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Well, I wanted to pivot a bit because there has been news, you know, of some of the gloating that's been happening on Russia's and China's side of underlining, look what America did, all of that. But I was curious to hear what the response has been in Georgia, because you're based currently in Georgia and the country, not the state. And <laughs> sometimes you need to clarify. And a lot of people might not know, I didn't know about this, that Georgia was actually fairly involved in the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, Georgia was the number one non-NATO contributor for a while was the number one per capita contributor. Uh, Georgia and the U.S. were up there as, like, as number one and number two. Uh, in terms of per capita, meaning how many troops they have deployed in Afghanistan relative to the size of the entire military, Georgia had, until the end, had about 800 forces and at the peak had 1,700 forces in Afghanistan fighting under the U.S. Marines down in Helmand province which was one of the most volatile and violent parts of the country. They lost 32 killed in Afghanistan. And that's, this is in a total military force of only 30,000. 32 killed there and well over 300 wounded. 250 to 300, over 300, including their Iraq deployments earlier. So total wounds and injuries in support of the U.S. and NATO was over 300. So yeah, they were, they were very involved in the mission. They, even before the Taliban takeover, there was a lot of concern here about what the end of the mission in Afghanistan would mean for Georgia's relationship with NATO and visibility to NATO. They, they realize here in Tbilisi that the decision as to whether Georgia gets into NATO or not is largely a political decision. At this point, they feel like they've done as much as any other new member has done in terms of their, their military reforms and contributions to alliance operations. So they understand it's a political decision, but they do see as they do see operating under U.S. or NATO command in combat operations as I would say necessary, but not sufficient for NATO membership. Right. So they know that they believe that absent a deployment in which they're involved under U.S. or NATO command, they probably stand no chance uh, of getting an invitation into NATO. But even with a deployment, that wouldn't be sufficient on its own to guarantee uh, NATO membership. So they're looking for ways to stay engaged in operations with NATO. Right now, the NATO mission in Iraq looks like the most likely candidate for Georgia to send forces down to Iraq under the NATO, the NATO command there to help with the training of the Iraqi army and security forces. But they're also publicizing uh, to NATO and to the U.S. their capabilities in what we call host nation support, which is essentially their ability to act as a logistics hub or a logistics base for NATO forces. They got very good reviews from the Germans. Uh, when the German armed forces did their retrograde, their withdrawal from Afghanistan, 
they use Georgia as a, a logistics base. And you'd go out to the airport here in Tbilisi and there were German Air Force A400s and uh, other aircraft out there. And so the, the Georgians provided fuel, they provided food and other supplies, they provided lodging to German air crews and, and German soldiers who were on their way back to Germany from Afghanistan. And the Germans were very impressed with the capability and appreciative of it. So, and, and by the way, they're doing the same right now with the U.S. evacuation out of Afghanistan. There's one plane a day arriving here in Tbilisi, coming out of uh, the airport in Kabul. And then the, the evacuees, whether they're American citizens or green card holders or special immigrant visa holders or whatever, are processed here in Tbilisi by the U.S. Embassy and then for onward movement to wherever their destination is. But Tbilisi is acting as uh, one of the U.S. and NATO hubs for the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And so Georgia's publicizing its capabilities to do that. They're also publicizing their capabilities as a, uh, a training site for NATO forces. They have extensive training areas without a lot of the restrictions that, that we run into in, in Europe, in Western Europe, in terms of can't do operations at night. Certain types of ammunition are, are not allowed to be used. And Georgia has very few restrictions as far as that goes. So in a lot of ways, it's a good place for NATO forces to exercise and to train. And, and so they're, they're marketing that as well. But they're just looking for a way to stay engaged with NATO and stay on NATO's radar in the end of the mission in Afghanistan, especially the, the, the rapid collapse of the Afghan army and government. You know, for Georgians, a lot of Georgian forces fought there. And like I said, 32 died there. So it's this is a really small army. And as traumatic as it is for the U.S. military, it's traumatic for this military, too. It's a lot of Georgians, Georgian soldiers and officers and NCOs based their reputation on what they did in Afghanistan. So you being in Georgia and Tbilisi right now, I, would this enter the minds of, of policymakers in Georgia? Uh, you know, they think about American support, potential NATO membership. But do you think this enters the political or geopolitical calculus and how they think of the United States seeing us move away so quickly from a conflict uh, like Afghanistan? And, you know, would we come to the aid of the Georgians if, if there was a repeat of, of 2008? Well, I guess it's important to say up front that you know, we're, we're a fairly legalistic society and government, and, and it, it's important to differentiate those countries to which we have treaty commitments and those to which we don't. Georgia is in the latter category. And so, you know, this you, you're hearing a lot of people talking about major non-NATO ally and all our major non-NATO allies are terrified now. So major non-NATO ally is essentially a, a status that gets you expedited handling of your equipment Things you buy from the United States with either with U.S. aid money or with your own money, it essentially is a it's a it's a category of security assistance that gets a country expedited delivery, you know, faster delivery. Potentially, it can get it better equipment, a higher category of equipment. It has nothing to do, despite the term ally being you know in there, it has nothing to do with any sort of legal commitment to the defense of the country. And the Georgians are very pragmatic, and they know that, right? They know. There's no U.S. commitment to their defense. Uh, there would be if they were in NATO. The Article 5 commitment would extend. But at, at this point, they're not NATO members and there's no bilateral security guarantee from the U.S. And so they're pragmatic and they're, they're astute enough to understand that what happened in Afghanistan, it's apples and oranges when you're talking about a country to which the U.S. has a legal commitment to defend, South Korea or Japan, for instance, or any of the 30 NATO allies, right? That's one of the reasons they want into NATO so badly is, one, they believe that that's where they belong. They believe that their vocation is a Western, a European vocation. They could contribute to NATO, uh, but they also 
realize it's the only way to guarantee their security is to be part of an alliance like that, a collective security arrangement. Yeah, it's definitely something that Russia has been pushing back on, vetoing Georgia membership, I believe, the same with Ukraine as well. And it's been getting some just pushback even from Western allies saying that, you know, we shouldn't give them any, any membership because it might incur Russia's wrath, rankle them the wrong way and kind of worsen the situation overall. I, I guess like with Ukraine, at least the general consensus is that Ukraine isn't ready for NATO membership. But what about Georgia? Georgia has probably gone farther in terms of its reforms, purely military reforms, than Ukraine has. It's a smaller country. It's a smaller army. You could make an argument that an institution, a smaller institution, is easier to reform than, you know, the, the massive institution that the Ukrainian armed forces are. And Ukraine is fighting a war. Georgians, they will tell you, and they're right, the Georgians, that they're fighting a hybrid war, that the Russians are continue to provoke them to what we call borderization. They are, they're erecting border fences along the administrative boundary lines of the South Ossetia or the Skinvali region. And, uh, you know, they continue to try to provoke the Georgians. They continue to kidnap Georgian citizens, some of whom have died in captivity. So, so I guess the short answer is yes, Georgia has gone farther than Ukraine has, but there's still work to do, right? There's still work to do. And again, like in Afghanistan, I think most of the work that needs to be done here is at that level of the generating force above the tactical units, at the level of the institutions that you know provide the equipment, the training, the education, the personnel, the doctrine, the plans and strategies for the tactical units, uh, and then at the at the high levels even higher than that, the executive levels of the general staff and the Ministry of Defense. There's work to be done there, and then finally, NATO is a political military alliance. So all the military reform in the world is not going to get you into NATO if you don't follow through on the political commitments, the commitments to constitutional, institutionalized democracy, free and fair elections on a regular schedule, constitutional changes of government, basic levels of human rights, right? These are all things that NATO looks at as well as the as the military calculus. And so, again, they've made a lot of progress. Uh, when you look at where, where Georgia was 30 years ago with the fall of the Soviet Union, the progress they've made is incredibly impressive. But, but again, you know, when Georgia's neighbors are Russia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Turkey, and then they have a Black Sea coastline. So this is a tough neighborhood. And so, you know, in that sense, with their security so tenuous, we should acknowledge uh, how difficult it is to liberalize an economy and a political system and to westernize uh, and to reform the military and do all these things at the same time in this region where military violence is very much a fact of life outside of their borders and then sometimes, you know, from the Russians inside their borders. But they're continuing to work. You know, there's so many pieces moving on the chess table now. We have to kind of keep an eye on what Russia's about to do, what China's about to do, keep an eye out for the Georgian elections in October as well as the Russian elections in October. Is there anything else we kind of need to keep an eye on? Wow. Well, in this, in this region, of course, the Russia-Turkey relationship is something that everyone's watching very closely, Georgia especially, because on the one hand, Turkey has been a very reliable proponent for Georgia's membership in NATO, the, the, you know, the Turkish government never misses an opportunity to say publicly that Georgia belongs in NATO. On the other hand, people are, are, are watching Turkey's relationship with Russia closely, and there's some understandable concern, as there is in the United States, right, about uh, where is the Russian-Turkish relationship going. 
The other thing that, that people here in this region worry about a lot is the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan that flared up, you know, last year very violently and, and an Azeri victory that uh, changed the calculus, uh, changed facts on the ground. And with the U.S. policy and Georgian policy as well, by the way, is that should be settled. That conflict should be settled peacefully and diplomatically. And whatever the status in Nagorno-Karabakh is, that all sides should agree on it. If there's a status change, it should be through peaceful means and not, not through violence. All right. Well, Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us again. We really appreciate it. You answered so many of our questions that have kind of been bobbling around in our heads for the past week or so since all of this news has been breaking. And we learned a lot about Georgia today as well. So thank you again for coming on the podcast a second time. Thank you so much. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Let me say that my comments and opinions are my own and don't reflect the policy or position of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you 